a day after a mob surrounded the... <coughs> I, I sound like Theresa May now. You do really do, yeah. It's Friday, March 15th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Paul Peters, Master Student in Civil Engineering and Larry the Cat Campaigner. And with me today is Gordon Derrick, Contributing Editor at Dutch News and Brexit Flowchart Enthusiast. Our third regular podcast host, Molly Quell, isn't with us today. She has left for Italy earlier this week and is currently taking photos of every snowy wall she could find. Yeah, and if she's got any sense, she won't be coming back soon because the weather is absolutely dreadful. It's there. very <laughs> dreadful, yeah. I had to cycle for only two minutes or something and I, yeah. was, I was soaking wet. It yeah. was, uh, it, it's insane. Yeah, uh, and also our fourth regular podcast host, which is the most important uh, yes. uh, part of our podcast, isn't here today because Truby, Molly's dog, is with her in uh, in Italy. Yeah, he's gone with her to Italy. Yeah, yeah, and I was really sad when I found that out. Yeah, I was I really sad Truby. as well because I realised that Truby soon will have more freedom of movement within Europe than me. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. That's true. But Truby can't vote in the Waterschapverkiezingen. He can't. No, no that's, that's true. true. That's, uh, that's yeah. a relief. First of all, we have to do a little disclaimer. Because mm. um, because of some schedule issues, we are currently recording on Thursday morning. Usually yes. we record the podcast on Friday. And that could mean that if something weird happens, I don't know, L- total collapse of social order in Uruk. I'm just going to yeah. just name something completely example, random. Or the British government just decides to pull the plug on Brexit. Exactly. Yeah. Then we won't be able to cover it. So please forgive us for that. Uh, we will cover it next week. Then. And uh, Paul, can you explain to the listeners uh, how you came to be a Larry the Cat campaigner? Well, I was uh, following the uh, the developments in uh, in Westminster this week, as mm. everybody was doing, and my favourite parody account is Larry the Cat. Yeah, the he is actually the best Brexit commentator, I think, of, yeah. the, of them all. Definitely, yeah. uh, it's Larry the Cat is the is the is the cat of Ten Downing Street. Yeah. his official title is the Chief Mouser of the Cabinet Office, and mm-hmm. if you looking up look him up on Wikipedia, it says that his office because it, it is an official position in the cabinet is older 200 years older than mm. that of the prime minister yeah so, so he has the longest serving um yeah uh, seat in the cabinet yeah yeah, yeah yeah and uh yeah he is the uh the the best brexit commentator yeah i think definitely mm-hmm. so um, oh and there was what particular a, highlights were there for you the absolute highlight was the photo he tweeted that was um uh, a little photoshop of uh you know a little uh, a podium mm-hmm. it was it was very small and behi- in front of Ten Downing Street and behind it wasn't the Prime Minister but Larry the Cat giving a speech to the press yeah. and I thought this this must happen we we must uh, we must have Larry <laughs> the Cat as the new Prime Minister because yeah. it couldn't couldn't be worse than, no. than what we have now. He would have to make more sense than any of the politicians <laughs> who've been speaking on the exactly. issue in the last two and a half years. And there are some presidents, because I believe there are some dogs in the US who yeah. are mayors of cities, so I yeah. think animals can definitely run uh, a government. Yeah, and of course, it was it Caligula who elected his horse as a senator <laughs> in, in Rome. That's right. I think, yeah. uh, so yeah. there's definitely, yeah. <laughs> and we have the Partei for the Dieren here, yes. of course. So yeah, uh-huh. the, the animals can uh, can govern. Yeah, animals have an important right uh, to play in governing us. And frankly, uh, I, I think a parliament of animals would do a better job than <laughs> the, the British parliament. It would be less loud, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> and Gordon, you are a uh, flowchart, enth- a Brexit flowchart enthusiast. 
Um, well, I just yeah, everybody at the moment seems to be making Brexit flowcharts, and none of them make any sense. It's kind no. of what happens if there's a deal, no deal. What happens if MPs vote this way, that way, the other way? And you've got everything gigantically complicated. I just had a um, realization, I suppose, and I just had an epiphany earlier in the week that actually what this really is is kind of like that that famous M.C. Escher drawing of the continuous staircase. You yeah, know, it's yeah. an optical illusion where you look like um, people are climbing, but actually you find they're going round in a circle and they end up back. On one side, you've got to vote to abolish no deal, and then, and then you have a vote on. Theresa May's deal and then the European Union gives an extension and they have another vote on Theresa May's deal yeah. another vote to rule out no deal Brexit and it just carries on going it's around the in circles the yeah, yeah, and Brexit yeah. uh, it will never happen and, and it's also very confusing because yeah. you don't know where you are and what's going to happen it's, it's, uh, it's no. a perfect Brexit metaphor no and everyone involved thinks like they're climbing and making progress but to the outsider you can see that nothing is that, that no one's going anywhere exactly. and uh, the, the crucial thing as well is at the bottom of the staircase you have a you have a very easy simple straightforward exit which is of course revoking article 50 but nobody can get there. First of all, Paul, it's time for you to tell us what the Ophef of the Week is. Yes, the Ophef of the Week is about Matthijs van Nieuwkerk. He is the host of daily talk show De Wereld Draait Door. He works for public broadcaster BNN Vara, and that should mean that his salary is supposed to be below the Balkanende norm. And the Balkanende norm is named after former Prime Minister Jan-Peter Balkanende, and it says that a public servant is not allowed to earn more than €194,000 a year, and that is the salary of the Prime Minister. So yeah. the, the Prime Minister yeah. is the one who earns the most. Yes. Which makes sense. Uh, but it is a public secret that Matthijs van Nieuwkerk earns more than that, but that is because his contract was signed before the Balkan and the Norm came into effect. Mm -hmm. The Telegraaf newspaper revealed earlier this week that van Nieuwkerk and the public broadcasting service came up with a scheme to make van Nieuwkerk earn even more than he already does by hiring him as a freelancer through an external production company. And that yeah. is for his new job as host of College Tour. Yeah. Uh, and the former host was... Uh, that was, of course, at Van Huys. Yeah. Yes, mm -hmm. who, who famously interviewed uh, Willem Hollander. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Bienan Vara claims that everything about this is legal and very common, but politicians in The Hague, including media minister Ari Slop and other MPs, have already said that they are very tired with the salary discussion for public broadcaster TV hosts and uh, they just want uh, new, stricter rules. Yeah, but you can see that's never going to happen. This is a very common thing. You get the BBC, actually, that uh, they hire all kinds of people via external production companies, and increasingly uh, they're encouraged to outsource and um, do competitive tendering for their programmes. That means that everyone... Who, you know, all the people, all the stars you see on the TV don't actually work for the BBC. They're under some kind of third-party contract, and you can't actually regulate that um, under the rules of public service broadcasting. No, but in <laughs> this case, for Newcastle already has a contract with the public broadcasting true, yeah. service, so this scheme is a little bit fishy. Yeah, but then, so, but alongside that, he then has, uh, yeah, he then presents Collegiate Tour as a freelancer. So the government basically has to decide: does it want to have? Um, uh, Freelancers does, does or contracted? Exactly, yeah. Does it want to contract out um, program making, or does it want to bring it all back in house? That course means that they don't have to spend more money on the uh, public broadcaster, which they're not keen on doing. So you can see it just not happening. No, no, yeah. So we'll continue, to, which is good news for Matthias from Newcastle because we'll continue <laughs> to rake in pots of money. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Good yeah. for him. This week we'll tell you about what is going on at an Islamic school in Amsterdam, what happened in Urk, and why a ministry banned dancing. In our discussion we tell you everything you need and want to know about the upcoming waterboard and provincial elections. Amsterdam City Council had to cancel a parents' meeting at the only Islamic high school in the capital on Tuesday because too many people turned up. The council's frozen funding for the Cornelius Hagel Lyceum after the security service AIVD said a number of staff had links to a terrorist organisation in the Caucasus region of Russia. Mayor Famke Halsema said the funding will only be restored once the entire board has resigned. 
Dutch Muslim organisations have also called for the board to step down. However, many parents have responded angrily to the move and they claim that the council is basically involved in a, uh, in a campaign to shut the school down and they say they'll continue to support it until they see evidence to back up the accusations. The city councillor counted on around 250 people attending Tuesday night's meeting, but Halsemar claimed they'd been boosted by supporters coming in from other cities. A new meeting was scheduled for Wednesday night, but this time hardly anybody turned up, partly because community leaders this time advised parents to stay away. Parliament is due to debate the situation on Thursday. Okay, so first the meeting is cancelled because too many people are coming, <laughs> probably from Urk or something. <laughs> Quite um, possibly. And, uh, and, and then the meeting is cancelled because nobody came. Yeah, okay. it wasn't cancelled, it did go ahead, but it, it, it finished oh. after half an hour because ah, it was okay. literally about half a dozen parents and they yeah. just talked privately to Funke Halsemaar. But it's not the first time that this school has run into a row over funding, hasn't it? Uh, no, um, the City Council and the Education Ministry were both dead set against the school opening um, in 2017, but it went ahead. Education Minister Sandra Decker refused to let the school have any public money because one board member had apparently expressed support for IS on Facebook. Uh, his successor, Ari Slob, has said he'll block plans to open similar schools in other cities, but the chairman of the board, Sona Atasov, has told NOS there will be further schools in The Hague, Utrecht and Rotterdam, and if necessary, they'll be privately funded, because, of course, um, under the Dutch education system, you have there's very little that the government can actually do to restrict the freedom of people to set up and operate their own schools. Yeah, uh, They can obviously not fund them, but they can't actually stop, they can't actually block them um, being established. No, and if this school finds other ways to, to fund itself, then, mm. then the government cannot do anything. Yeah. Um, and what exactly are the concerns about the school? Well, the IFA Day obviously didn't go into the detail because there's the Secret Service, but the mayor said the claim that teaching staff had links with terrorism organisations was, quote, striking. Uh, she's worried that the 174 pupils at the school are living in a kind of closed community or parallel society where their trust in democratic institutions is being undermined. Um, the pupils at the school dispute this and they say that there's very little um, Islamic instruction outside you know, religious uh, education classes. Uh, but there have been claims that religion pervades the curriculum and dictates how other subjects such as science are taught. Uh, teachers claim the Holy See is basically being driven by anti-Muslim sentiment and that uh, the government has, has been against the school from the start. And yeah. this is the latest stage so it's very very thorny and it's it, it, it's getting yeah very uh, complicated um labor party leader lodovic assa who was an alderman in amsterdam when the last islamic school there closed because of falling numbers and concerns about the poor standards of teaching he's now saying the constitution should be amended uh, to remove the clause that guarantee or to amend the clause that guarantees freedom of education so that the government can ban schools that don't promote integration and a number of opposition parties have lined up behind him so that i think is going to be a focal point of the debate um on Thursday, which we obviously can't bring you because that's the day we were recording. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it will be an interesting debate, definitely, yes. uh, especially because there are a lot of um, uh, parties, including several uh, coalition parties that are fundamentally opposed. Yeah. Um, um, famously, the uh, the freedom of education was traded for, do you know what? In Go 1917, on. for women's right to vote. Ah, yes, I think I had read about this, actually. Yeah. Right, yeah, so, 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 so it's all women's fault. Basically. It's all the women's fault, yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, yeah. The climate agreement may not be enough to reach the government's targets of reducing Dutch CO2 emissions by 49% compared to 1990 levels. The 600 proposals were worked out by ministers, lobby groups, industry and special interest groups last year, and the impact of the plans was calculated by the Dutch Environmental Assessment Agency, PBL, and planning agency, CPB. Wow, we have a lot of planning agencies yes. here in the Netherlands. Yes, all the, all this, this is always a, uh, a feast for the acronyms, isn't it? These, <laughs> yeah, these exactly. Yeah, and, and also the translation of these, uh, <laughs> Indeed, of yeah. these names. 
names, uh, and these uh, planning agencies released a report on Wednesday. Um, they say the plans will lead to a reduction of greenhouse gases between 31 and 52 megatons, which means the targets of 49 megatons may not be reached. The cost of the agreement will be between 1.6 billion and 1.9 billion euros a year, well below earlier estimations of 3.9 billion. Okay, so can you explain, Paul, in as briefly as you can, what the climate <laughs> agreement is and how, I, how, how we got to have it? I will try. I have to say, when uh, uh, when this was in the news, mm. we were either on in the summer break or on the uh, the Christmas break, yeah. so we haven't really covered this on the podcast. I have to admit, but when the coalition was formed, it was agreed that the Netherlands would work towards the goal of reducing CO2 emissions by 49% in light of the Paris uh, Climate Agreement of 2015. The question was, of course, how are we going to reach this goal? And the cabinet came up with this plan. They organized talks between the government and 300 organizations, such as lobby groups, private individuals, representatives of industries, such as aviation, electricity, agriculture. Everyone you can imagine mm. was invited to, uh, to these talks. And they had the task, come up with a list, uh, of, of proposals that we can do in order to reduce these our CO2 emission by, with these f- 49%. And this group, after nine months of talking, they come up with a list of 600 proposals that could be carried out. Uh, these proposals were then sent to these planning agencies. Yeah. And the idea was when the planning agencies calculate these through, we have uh, you know this list of proposals, what will be the reduction uh, for every for mm-hmm. every proposal, and how much will it cost? Yes. And after that, the the the, the politicians could make a weighed decision. Uh, what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. What will it cost? Uh, that was uh, that was the idea. Yeah, and that's a crucial thing, is that they have to then decide once they've just established how much it will cost. They then got to actually work out how they split the bill effectively. Yeah. So how much industry pays, how much private households pay, and that's been a running issue over the last couple of months, hasn't it? Exactly. And yeah. there had been a lot of debate about um, uh, uh, about these proposals even before. The, uh, the, uh, the planning agencies came with a report, uh, the f- infamous klimaatdrammer uh, remarks yes. by Klaas Dijkhoff, who all made in light of these uh, of this klimaatakkoord. Uh, mm. um, yeah, so uh, we were talking about it uh, for for a long time now, yeah. and now finally, one week before <laughs> the provincial elections, uh, this report came out. Yeah, it has included this rather interesting uh, softer clause that says that the the total cost is going to be less than everybody expected. So I guess. Um, the coalition will hope that that's, uh, that's a positive thing for voters. But this has been kind of source of tension within the coalition, hasn't it? Because two parties, the Fefe Day and the CDR, the Christian Democrats, have been very reluctant to embrace climate change. Especially in light of the cost. Especially in light of the cost. And especially, yes, more, more than, although the Fefe Day have moved more towards um, uh, embracing uh, the, op- the opportunities, I suppose, for business um, and, and innovation. Uh, but on the other hand, you've got Days and Zester and uh, the Christian Union, but especially Days and Zester, who are really quite evangelical about the fact that we really need to tackle the climate problem. And that tension has been a kind of a running uh, thing uh, within uh, the current uh, coalition. So what was the initial reaction to the announcement uh, this week then? Yeah, there were mixed reactions. On the one hand, uh, we had, of course, uh, politicians who were glad that the cost of the climate proposals were much lower than expected, as we already said. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, some were disappointed that uh, we might not even reach these CO2 emission uh, targets of 49%. Uh, the planning agency also calculated that 80% of the cost would be passed to consumers and private households. Uh, Prime Minister Mark Rutte responded to this by saying that uh, he thought that this was way too much and uh, and unfair and he's willing to find ways to make uh, factories and companies uh, pay more. So yeah, GroenLinks is now really really happy with this. Mm-hmm. He, he also said that uh, he is uh, willing to look at the CO2 yeah. tax, for example. 
Um, and, and that's uh, a major about turn by Rutte, isn't it? He's said yeah. in the past, in the fifth day especially, he's been very, very, very clear about they don't want a CO two tax for um, for um, for the heaviest polluters. And now they came out this week and said that they are in favour of it. Yeah, yeah. But that's that's only because eighty percent of the bill would be presented yeah. to households. So yeah. if it would be lower, then Margrethe would never have made this turn. I think. No. Um, yeah, so uh, Margrethe also added that he's willing to work together with all parties to come up with a diesel plan, and that plan is uh, expected in April. We must sadly turn once again to Brexit, the long-running soap opera that's become the political equivalent of the bold and the beautiful. <laughs> Turgid, badly scripted, devoid of likeable characters, and yet strangely compelling. <laughs> After British Prime Minister Theresa May masterminded yet another crushing defeat for her deal to leave the European Union, her Dutch counterpart Mark Rutte said the solution now had to come from London. He wrote on Twitter on Tuesday evening, quote, The Dutch government will keep working tirelessly to make sure the damage for the Netherlands and Dutch citizens living and working in the UK is minimised in the now more likely case of a no-deal Brexit. Should the UK hand in a reasoned request for an extension, I expect a credible and convincing justification. On Wednesday night, the House of Commons voted against a no-deal exit, but that depends on the EU agreeing to an extension. In the absence of an extension, a deal or a miracle, the United Kingdom will leave the EU at midnight on March 29th, which is in just two weeks' time. Yeah, and if you look at these uh, these statements by Mark Rutte, you would think this is something you would say at the beginning of the two-year period of yes, leaving Brexit. But, exactly. I mean, it's only, it's only two weeks away, so yeah, it's... What did... What did they reach? They didn't reach anything. I they think. didn't really do very much. No, no. but I think what's uh, yeah, what's emerged from uh, again, I stress, we're talking on Thursday morning, and there are more votes on Thursday night, so the whole picture could have completely changed by the time uh, you actually start Ex- listening. People exactly. actually listen to this. Yeah. Um, but I think what emerged on Wednesday night was that uh, well, the Parliament in London has now said it will not, or it, it has instructed the government basically to, to avoid a no deal scenario. But of course, fundamentally, it can't because if it doesn't come up with a deal, no deal is yeah. what you fall into if you haven't done anything else, and the government said it won't revoke Article 50. So I think what... But what Theresa May is now planning to do, possibly, is put the... is is do what's called Meaningful Vote 3, which sounds like a terrible straight-to-video number. But... (laughs) (laughs) That that you rented, you know, for a night in and immediately regret it. But the vote against No Deal was actually a meaningless vote. Yes. And now they are countering it with a meaningful vote. Apparently, yes. But but the idea is she's now going to put the deal to Parliament for the third time. This is the deal, remember, that was rejected first time by over 200 votes and the second time by 150. But I think what what she's done, and this is a shrewd move by Theresa May's standards, which isn't the same much, but she's basically tied the timing to the deal now. I think what she's basically saying, um, maybe not in quite so many words, is that there's now basically a choice for the Brexiteers that they can, they can if they back the deal, then they can have uh, get out of the European Union with a short extension. Um, mm. to the end of June. So the first time now, the government, which has been saying up till now, that it's going to leave on March 29th, an extension solves nothing. Now, so they need an extension, they need a technical extension until the end of June. And if they don't, But if they don't back the deal, then they will have to ask for a longer extension of 21 <laughs> months. Now, the Brexiteers do not want that because no, that would definitely. mean Britain continuing to be in the EU for uh, you know, well over a year. It would have to take part in the European Parliament elections <laughs> and it would have to keep paying into the European budget. Yeah, which lasts seven years. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, but as you said, it all depends on what the EU 
uh, is willing to do and are they going to grant an extension? Yeah, well, it's, I mean, in the past, European leaders like uh, Donald Tusk have hinted that if the British government asked for an extension, it will get one. Um, one, yeah, but the words credible and convincing by Greta, I think, uh, really um, struck me because they imply clearly that's not guaranteed. He's giving the space for the EU uh, to, you know, to, to, uh, to, um, to refuse. Um, and Greta has also emphasised that all 27 member states need to agree to a delay among themselves. He's basically saying language has changed and the EU is now locked into that Brexit will happen. It's, it's no longer as it was, say, a year ago, where they were still kind of a, uh, they were still expressing a hope that maybe the whole thing could be undone or watered down. But everyone now, business industry and the EU nations, uh, have accepted that Brexit will happen. And he's basically saying the days of the EU just giving the United Kingdom what it wants um, are over, and they're going to actually have come up with some decent reasons. But I mean, what they don't want is just to kick the can down the road and end up in exactly the same mm. position three months from now that they're in right now. But I'm going to stick my neck out and say, I mean, I think there will be an extension. Firstly, because the British government just needs time to get the legislation through Parliament yeah. um, to actually organise, to arrange the no deal. And I think the EU will let them have a couple of months, and a few weeks to sort that out. It only becomes a problem when you get past the 1st of July when the new European Parliament takes its seat. And then if there's been no elections in the UK, then potentially that parliament is not legally constituted. So that yeah. is a real sticking point. Up to the end of June, it's there's no real obstacles to an extension. Um, but also, right from the start, the EU has been very clear what it wanted was a transition period when the UK leaves. A long transition of 18 months to two years, which it wanted, is now looking increasingly problematic. A short transition of two or three months is also very desirable because we're in the Netherlands, which has actually got very well organised and prepared for Brexit. But as you get deeper into Europe, that you know, countries still really need more time to start getting things, things sorted out so they can have some kind of, you know, so they can trade goods and move move money across borders uh, yeah. when Brexit actually happens. And to do that, they, they can't organise all that within two weeks. I think everybody you know, is still inclined to give the UK a bit of an extension just so they can actually start um, organising that. Because you've got to remember that Brexit is a two-stage process. First of all, they had to actually have the deal for Britain to leave the EU, but then they have to arrange the future relationship between Britain and the 27 European countries. And they haven't even started on that process. No, because so there, there was one, no deal. Because there's yeah. been no deal, and it's not been clear up until now whether there would be a deal or whether, you know, whether Brexit would happen at all. Now it's clear Brexit will happen. There is a deal on offer to the British government. The British government is still trying to get that through. And once it's clear, and it will be clear then by next Wednesday, which is the 20th of March, whether that deal's been accepted or it's not going to go ahead. Then they can start um, uh, working towards a future relationship and they will want to have a bit of a transition period to do that, uh, in, uh, to start that process rather than just fall off the cliff edge. Yeah. So I think for that reason, there is going to be some kind of extension. It's good news for those of us who, are, who have a couple of weeks or a month to go until we reach our five-year qualifying yeah. period for our Dutch citizenship. Like, like whom? Like whom? <laughs> no one in particular. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It is a mess. It's it's very complicated. Uh, every 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 day there is a new development which totally changes everything. Except that. Except it doesn't change anything. No, at all. yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's a weird yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah, all these journalists on the BBC they keep yeah. saying that this is a, this changes everything, and then yeah. later you think, yeah, what exactly changed? Well, nothing. I know. I keep watching the news in, on the BBC and listening to podcasts and saying this is going to be a historic week you know, at the start of the week they always say this is going to be the real crucial week which decides yeah. everything and then by the end of the week you realise nothing's happened yeah. and they're still in this stuck in this you know, limbo situation yeah. they've been in for the last two and a half I, years I absolutely loved this joke by I believe it was John
John Oliver, who said uh, Brexit is like Pompeii if Pompeii had voted for the volcano. <laughs> yes. Or yeah, it's ba- yeah, it's basically like if it's Brexit is like Titanic if Titanic yeah. voted for the for the iceberg. Yeah, yeah. but Brexit Brexit in the last few months has basically been yeah, um, Theresa May uh, has been basically like the captain of the Titanic going back to renegotiate with the iceberg. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That that would make an interesting film. <laughs> that would be twelve Oscars, I think. Yeah. Certainly better than Meaningful Vote 3. <laughs> exactly. And we should say as well, for anyone who's listening who's a British national and wants to share their experiences of how Brexit is affecting them or just wants to vent, we have a new feature on the Dutch news website called Brexit and Me. So if you want to take part in that, uh, you can either email editor at dutchnews.nl or drop me a direct message on Twitter at, at Gordon Derrick. Five young men, aged 14 to 21, have been arrested for their role in an attack on the family home of a young Dutch Moroccan in the Orthodox Christian village of Urk. Several arrests took place on Tuesday, a day after a mob surrounded the Bukizu family home in the fishing village and several youngsters forced their way in, slightly injuring the 36-year-old mother, her son Sufyan and her daughter. Police said about 100 youths were involved in the disturbances, which began in a snack bar. Officers from nearby districts, armed with batons and dogs, were brought in to restore order. According to local paper De Stentor, some of the troublemakers chanted Geertje Wilders as they surrounded the family home, some throwing stones and others fireworks. Urk mayor Pieter van Maren described the incident as completely unacceptable and MPs from across the political spectrum have called for answers. The cause of the trouble is still unclear. Some reports suggest Sufjan was targeted for insulting a girl. Others suggest the teenager has been the butt of attacks for several years. Two years ago, Sufjan, now 18, was beaten up by islanders and reported that attack to the police. Now people think that I was given compensation because my dad bought a Mercedes a while ago, he told the Stentor. Police turned out in force to head off any trouble on Tuesday evening, effectively sealing the villagers to outsiders. And I believe last night there were also some, uh, there was there was a lot of police activity, but yeah. no major uh, incidents. Yeah, there was more unrest. I think there was more fireworks being thrown, but it wasn't on the scale that it had been on Monday or Tuesday night. No. Yeah. I suppose it's worth saying to people who aren't so familiar with uh, this country, Urk has got kind of a very... Yeah, um, a particular situation within the Netherlands, isn't it? Because people talk about uh, people who live there talk about being on Urk because it used to be an island, yeah, and it still has a bit of that island mentality, isn't it? Fair to say, yeah, it was. Yeah. Uh, I believe in the 1960s, Flevoland was poldered, yeah, yes. I'm not even sure. Uh, it was reclaimed, well, it was reclaimed from the sea, and yeah. uh, what they did was they incorporated the island of Urk, which lay in the Ijsselmeer, and and before that, in, in the South Sea, they incorporated within this province. So it's in the mm. middle of Flevoland right now, but it yeah. used to be an island, yeah, and it's only got some. I think one or two access roads, so it's still sort of... It's, it's very still, isolated. It is still quite isolated, even though it's now on the mainland. And it's this yeah. Christian Orthodox place where, yes. uh, you know, they still wear a klededracht, these exactly, traditional yeah. clothing. And, and like they have something like a 50% vote for the uh, SGP, the uh, Orthodox Christian Party. Exactly. So it's a very uh, unique place, uh, yeah. y- you could say. And, yeah, I was really surprised to hear that there, that there lived a, a Muslim family there. I was, mm. I was already surprised that there lived someone else than the SGP family. Yeah. Uh, let alone Muslim. It's, yeah, it's it's so weird. It's, yes, um, apparently, but, but apparently, yeah. So I think you can't you can't get away. I think you can't totally dismiss the idea that there is some kind of cross-community tension or racism uh, underpinning this because mm. it's so, so it's so much more extreme a form of violence than yeah. you usually get with just your standard snapbar fight. But it, it's it's unclear exactly what's happened. Yeah. There is a community apparently of about fifty um, migrant families in Uruk now. 
out. Mm. Uh, I was reading. Um, there's also been a crowdfunding action, uh, action I see, which has oh, raised yeah. about uh, five thousand uh, euros. Uh, for, for the mother, for, was, uh, for, for, for the, the family, family who uh, yeah who, who were targeted the um yeah, the, the 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 Bukizu family yeah, yeah. um so it's uh, yeah so, so again it's it's one of these things where you often see on social media there's a lot of a uh, lot of angry chat and uh, people t- t- saying very you know hateful things but there's also uh, a kind of counter uh, stream of people wanting to um, help it uh, wants to help and muck in and offer support which yeah. is encouraging. For this week's sports news, we turn our attention to the climax of the speed skating season, where Kjelten Naus has been burning up the ice, not literally. Naus set two world records in the final round of the World Cup series last weekend. First, he won the 1,000 metres in a new best time of 1 minute 6.18 seconds on Saturday, and then the next day he sliced almost a second off the 1,500 metre record. Both times, Thomas Kroll, who finished second, also went faster than the old world record. And there was also success in Bulgaria for Susanna Schulting, who became the first Dutch woman to win the world all-round title at short track. Schulting also won gold in the 1,000 metres and bronze in the 500 metres, although she was unhappy about being disqualified in the semi-finals of the 1,500 metres. Yeah, this uh, this ice skating effect. Where, where was it? In Salt Sophia, Lake City. Yeah. Oh, oh, no, sorry, the one in Salt Lake City, the men's. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I kept getting push notifications of, of the NOS because yeah. I think it was Kjeld Nuis or, or other people. They kept winning medals and I got yeah. receiving these push notifications. And I, I got re- and in the middle, well, it was late <laughs> at night because it was in Salt Lake City, of course. And I kept swiping away these, these, these push notifications. And at mm. one point, my phone even asked me, do you still want to get push <laughs> notifications from the NOS? And of course, <laughs> you said yes. Yeah. <laughs> I said yes, but. Not, not not about ice skating, skating because I don't really care about this. Mm. But uh, yeah, congratulations to uh, to Kjeld Nuis and others who uh, who won their medals. But uh, is there also some some other football news? Uh, it's been a bit of football news. Uh, Ajax won their delayed Eredivisie match against Pek Zwolle on Wednesday night with a late goal from Daily Blind, and that means they're now just two points behind PSV. The clubs are playing each other in Amsterdam in two weeks' time. Uh, and Ajax will also find out on Friday who they're going to be playing in the quarterfinals of the Champions League following their victory over Real Madrid last week. Who are the other teams in the quarterfinals? Uh, there's uh, there's four English clubs in now. I think uh, Liverpool, wow. Liverpool, because Liverpool beat Bayern Munich uh, overturned uh, oh, yeah, uh, right. uh, on Wednesday. Uh, Liverpool, Manchester City, uh, Tottenham. Um, and somebody else. So no Brexits in the Champions League? Uh. No Brexits in the Champions League, no. <laughs> The newly built Ministry of Foreign Affairs in The Hague has banned dancing. Mm. We had Formula One uh, last week banning cars, yeah. and now we have uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs banning uh, dancing. Yeah, is this because the SGP have uh, taken over? <laughs> yeah, no dancing on Sunday. No. <laughs> um, yeah, a memo sent out to all staff after an inspection revealed that the underfloor construction was potentially unsafe was leaked to the NOS, who published it on Monday. The checks were carried out following the collapse of a car park at Eindhoven Airport in 2017. Staff has been told not to pile up paper too high in the print room, place more than one row of chairs around conference tables or install heavy cupboards in the ministry's new headquarters next to The Hague Central Station. Additionally, the ministry banned dance parties in the restaurant. I don't know how many dance parties <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, I, I've never thought, really thought that Dutch civil servants are the kind of people who organise weekly yeah. dan- dance festivals. Imagine but... Steph Block attending. <laughs> I can't. He'd no. be dancing with a Muppet. <laughs> <laughs> 
dancing the tango with the Brexit puppet. Yeah, wow. Yeah. I, I would like to see that. I have to admit. Yeah, yeah. I, I would. I would watch footage of that. Too, yeah. uh, it would be the best thing ever about Brexit. Uh, but this hasn't been the only recent incident involving ministerial buildings, uh, right? No, that's right. A couple of weeks ago, it was revealed that uh, officials absolutely hate the building that was designed by star architecture firm OMR, who won an award for it. They won yeah. several uh, sustainability awards yes. for it, but a survey resulted in 42 recommendations for improvement to the building. Complaints ranged from a lack of privacy, over-reliance on flexible workplaces, and the depressing atmosphere of the dark-colored interior, which resembled a mausoleum, mm-hmm. according to uh, public servants. Mm-hmm. Staff also complained about the cold and puddles of water by the entrance after rain. Junior Home Affairs Minister Raymond Knops faced questions in Parliament after two civil servants were injured when they tripped and fell down the very expensive <laughs> design staircase. Yeah, because the staircase has got a kind of lip on the steps, hasn't it? And apparently when they're wearing yeah. high heels, they're, they're, oh, the, yeah. the heels get catching it and they, exactly. and they fall over. So I have, if you learn one thing about this podcast, it is this. Never hire a star <laughs> architecture firm yes. when you want a new building because they cannot design buildings. Yeah. Um, especially OMR, uh, the, 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 the architecture really? firm of they Rem Koolhaas. Rem Koolhaas, what did he do? He designed the dance theater in The Hague. Yeah. What did they do with this? They demolished it because everybody hated the building. Mm-hmm. You can't dance in it. And um, also this OMR bu- uh, firm, they, were, they are also involved in the renovation of the Binnenhof. And uh. one of the leading architects was fired because she insisted on installing a tropical indoor garden. Oh, yeah. And uh, all the uh, MPs and the, uh, the, the minister as well, they absolutely don't want that. Because why do you want a tropical garden in a parliament building? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yes. It's not comfortable. It is not nice. It, so yeah, she was uh, she was kicked out of the door before it was too late. So I'm very glad that happened. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they want a tropical garden for the Khun uh, links and the Patavina deal. Oh yeah, so that might. Be, yeah, exactly. They uh, can uh, have their animals there in there, so, yeah. sort of a menagerie. Sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they can have their uh, their, their little zoo in uh, <laughs> inside. We'll be discussing the upcoming provincial and waterschap elections after this word from our sponsors. For over 30 years, Access has been helping internationals settle in the Netherlands. Access is staffed by an all-volunteer team, themselves internationals, who know firsthand what the challenges are with settling in a new country. They can answer your questions or guide you to the right resources, and they also offer an on-call counseling service. You can find out more information about Access on their website, www.access-nl.org, by contacting the help desk at helpdesk at access-nl.org, or by dropping by one of their expat centers in The Hague, Utrecht, Amsterdam, and Leida. Next week, on Wednesday, March 20th, there is a new round of elections in the Netherlands. This time, we don't have one, but two elections. Representatives for all 12 provinces will be elected, as well as the waterschappen, or water boards. If you don't know what they are doing, don't feel bad, almost nobody does. And we are here to help you and to tell you everything you need to know about the provincial and the water board elections. Okay, so let's start with the basics. There are 12 provinces and each of them has an assembly or a parliament. Yes, that's true. We have 12 provinces in the Netherlands and they all have provincial houses where provincial representative meets only once a month. I was surprised to hear that it's only once a month. Yeah, because I know the pay is not very good. That's obviously why, because it's really a part-time job. Yeah, well, it's less than a part-time job. Yes. How many representatives a province has depends on the population. For example, North Holland and Brabant, they are the largest provinces in terms of populations and they have 55 representatives 
representatives. And Zeeland, which is the smallest, has 39. The province is the administrative level in between the national government and the municipalities. After an election, which takes place every four years, all the elected parties meet and try to form a coalition, very similar to the Tweede Kamer mm -hmm. or in the municipalities. But the provincial coalitions tend to be much broader than in the municipality or in uh, the Tweede Kamer. For example, in Limburg, there is a five-party coalition. You were talking about four-party coalitions yeah. in our group chat earlier this week. And this five-party coalition is between VVD, CDA, D66, PVDA and SP. So it's right. the entire yeah, political spectrum in exactly. one coalition. Yeah. And in the municipal elections, we see lots of local parties. Uh, is that a phenomenon you see in the, in the provincial level? Uh, yeah, but not that many as in the municipality elections, which is logical because there are less provinces less than local. municipalities. Yeah. It's, uh, it's less local, but we've seen the trend of more and more local parties mm. emerging. Right now, there are 15 local elections on the uh, provincial assemblies, and uh, this number is rising. So yeah. we see a tendency to to much more local parties. So is it unusual that we have these coalitions with such a broad spectrum? No, because five of the 12 coalitions currently have VVD and SP in them. Yeah. And they are on the left and on the right. Absolutely, yeah. So they are sworn enemies, you would think. But mm -hmm. in the provincials, everything can happen, apparently. Yeah. And where we have the college van wethouders in the municipalities and the cabinet on national level, in the province, the executive board is called the Gedeputeerde Staten, yeah. which Wikipedia translates to a provincial executive. Yeah, which it's a bit of a clumsy name. But, is, uh, yeah, <laughs> but there is simply no translation, I think, no. for gedeputeerde staten. Yeah. And the commissaris van de Koning, who chairs the provincial meetings and is responsible for public order, can best be compared to a mayor and is also appointed by the king. Uh, and fun fact, in Limburg, the commissaris van de Koning is called a gouverneur. Ah, that's the so only province where it, that is different. That yeah. has some historical reasons. I believe Limburg was once part of the Holy Roman Empire. When it became part of the Kingdom of the Netherlands, it was also part of the Holy Roman Empire. But yeah. because they didn't have a duchy or a duke or something like that, they were appointed the governor. So what do the provinces actually do? What are their tasks? Uh, well, the provinces have a number of tasks, such as ruimtelijke ordening. I yeah. didn't know how to translate this into English. Yeah, sort of, um, it's kind of planning, basically, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, spatial uh, planning. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, so they decide what can be built and, and where. Yeah, exactly. Um, and they're also responsible for energy, for the environment, mobility and public transportation and also the regional economy. And they uh, do the oversight over the waterschappen and the municipalities. Yeah. Their main job is to execute national policies. So, uh, for example, uh, the government decides that a new motorway needs to be built in Brabant. Mm -hmm. But then it is the province who decides where exactly this motorway, how it will run. So right. maybe on the east or on the west side of a city, for example, that's the yeah. task of the provinces. Right. OK. And also a good example is the uh, shooting of deer in the Oostvaardersplasse. Right. We've seen in the past years, we've seen all these images of all these large animals that were starving in the Oostvaardersplasse in Flevoland. Yeah. And then the question was, what are we going to do with this? Are we going to shoot them? which seems inhumane, mm -hmm. or are you going to let them starve to death? It's also inhumane. Yeah. And then it was eventually the province who decided what was going to be done, and right. not the agricultural minister, as you might expect. Okay. So what have been the issues uh, in the campaign for the provincial elections? We haven't seen that many, I have yeah. to say. I mean, we live in South Holland. Yeah, both you and me. And do you know what the pressing issues in South Holland are? I have absolutely no idea. No, no, no. because there aren't that many. <laughs> yeah. Maybe in Groningen, you have, of course, these human-induced earthquakes caused by gas extraction. That mm -hmm. is obviously a major issue over yeah. there. You got you got the Oostvaardersplassen, of course, uh, in, in, the, in the, the, the animals there. I suppose yeah. that would play there. But generally speaking, there aren't that many problems. And you could say that's maybe because things are run very smoothly and very well. Mm -hmm. That means we don't have heard that many problems. But what I think happens all the time is that low. Local elections are hijacked by national politics. Mm. And I, I found that very 
annoying that you yeah. know you turn on the TV and who do you see? You see Rob Jette, you see Margarita, and they are talking about national policies, even though we are voting regional representatives. Yeah. And for the provincial election, you could say that makes sense because it also has a national consequence. Yes, there's a national dimension which we're going to come on to uh, very soon. But, but uh, for the municipality election, you see the same thing. We have a, a televised debate, and who are that? The national leaders, and they're yeah. not talking about any problems that are dealt with by the municipality or the province. I mean, the past, uh, we had a we had a televised debate last week. And what were they debating about? Zwarte Piet, yeah. which has absolutely nothing to do with the provinces. And yeah. that bothers me a bit, yeah. I have to admit. Yeah, But as you said, there is a national dimension here, of course, because the provincial assemblies have the job of choosing the Senate. So tell us how that works. I thought it was very complicated, but in the end, it wasn't that complicated no. as I expected. Well, how did this came about? It was until 1848 that the Senate was simply appointed by the king. Mm-hmm. In that year, the constitution changed, and initially the idea was to have the Eerste Kamer directly elected just as the Tweede Kamer. But there was some opposition by the upper classes, and as a sort of compromise, it was decided that the Eerste Kamer would be directly chosen by politicians, yeah. and these people tended to be from the upper classes, so it would be an election only under yeah. the upper class. A vote by the ruling class among themselves. Exactly. Yeah. But it wasn't designed this way, but this system has a benefit. The Eerste Kamer now is much more distant from current affairs and day-to-day politics. They can look objectively to legislation yeah. and they can really judge it on what's on the paper instead yes. of with the media knocking on their door. And that's it wasn't designed that way, but it is a benefit uh, of yeah. the system. Yeah, I mean, traditionally the role of the Senate has always been to to kind of vet any legislation that comes through the Trader Karma to make sure that it's compatible with all the other laws that are already in force. But it has become more politicised, isn't it fair to say, in recent yeah. years? Yeah, especially yeah. because uh, we've seen coalition emerge that didn't have a majority in the Eerste Kamer. Yeah. So they were actively seeking coalitions in the Eerste Kamer and it's it's becoming increasingly more political. Yeah, and yeah. you can see that in debates, I mean, I'm thinking there was a Senate debate, I think, at the end of last year about euthanasia, where it was uh, very much more of a political discussion and um, senators were effectively voting with their consciences more, perhaps, than they were in the Trader Kamer, yeah, where, they, where you, they voted along party lines. But you could say that's not political at all. Yeah. You give everybody the, the freedom of, of how, yeah, to, how to vote. But they are still going beyond actually just assessing the quality of the law on, in, in legal terms. Yeah, they're, that's they're, true. They're bringing more political or, in this case, ethical considerations into the vote, yeah. into their voting behaviour. That is true. And what's the mechanism then for choosing uh, the senators in the Eerste Kamer? Uh, well, after the provincial representatives are chosen, they will elect the Eerste Kamer MPs in May. Naturally, a provincial representative will vote for an MP of his own party. So a VVD deputy yeah. will vote for a VVD MP candidate. And that's why you have all these national parties that are emerging in the campaign to mm. encourage people to vote for them because more votes in the provinces will mean more seats in the Eerste Kamer. Yeah, so effectively the makeup of the Senate will be the same as the makeup of the vote for the provincial assemblies, more or less. More or less, not exactly, because not every provincial vote counts the same. They are weighed based on the amount of people a provincial representative represents. Mm. So I dived into this and I thought it was less complicated than I initially expected. But they take the population of a province and it is divided by the amount of representatives in that province times hundreds. Mm -hmm. So for example, you have Flevoland, they have 400,000 people living there. They have 41 representatives. So if you divide 400,000 by 4,100... You get 98. Okay. And that's the voting value of a representative from Flavor. Oh, right. So, so, so not all votes count the same? No, because yeah. in Zuid-Holland, this voting value is 655. Wow. 
So that's huge difference. Yeah. almost seven times more than, yeah. than a representative from Flevoland. Yeah. And that way, politicians are you know, calculating how will these votes affect the assembly of the Eerste Kamer. Yeah. And that's why you often see that parties, they exchange votes. Yes. So you have, for example, a D66 deputy from Flevoland, and he says... Well, if I vote for CDA, then uh, the number of seats of D66 in the Eerste Kamer will not change. Mm-hmm. But CDA will gain one more, for mm-hmm. example. But you have to make sure that you will actually do the voting correctly. Yes, because in addition to uh, all the votes having different weights, you also have to make sure that there are also other technical considerations exactly. um, that may influence the validity of the votes. There was an infamous <laughs> incident in, I think it was 2005, where it was a little bit later. A D66 guy, he voted for a D66. Sester MP candidate, but he voted not with a red pencil, but with a blue pen. Mm. And that meant that his vote was invalid. <laughs> and counting all the votes, it turned out that Deza Sester lost one seat yeah. in the Eerste Kamer. So they missed out on the senator purely because uh, one of their delegates used the wrong coloured pen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's like so. being at school, isn't it? <laughs> it is, yeah. <laughs> your Zam gets zero marked because, you know, you've spelt your name wrong at the top of the paper. Or exactly, something. something like that. So yeah, it could be really, there could be consequences if we yeah. don't vote correctly. So message to all uh, college voters, make sure you use your red pencil. Exactly. And to all voters, actually, of course, as well, who are participating in this vote. And that brings us on to the question, of course, who is eligible to to take part in these elections? Well, you can vote in the provincial elections if you are a Dutch national over the age of 18. So that means that probably... All of our listeners cannot vote for no. these elections. M- many will not be. Able to. Many will not be. Yeah. Uh, but what you probably can vote for is the waterschappen or the waterboards, as uh, as I like to call them, especially mm. when Molly is around, but she isn't here. No, unfortunately, <laughs> all Dutch nationals and non-Dutch nationals who are either EU citizens or hold a valid residency permit can vote in the waterboard elections. You don't have to register; you automatically receive a stamp pass. Yeah, and uh, as with local elections, I think you can vote anywhere within your waterboard area. Yeah, you know where it is. Exactly. Yeah, but your stem pass will say where your nearest polling station is, but you don't have to vote there. So no, if it's more convenient to vote near your work, you can do that. Yeah, or in the train station. And yeah. I also heard for for us, the Eerste Kamer is for the first time they open as a as a polling station. So if you want to vote in the Eerste Kamer, you ah, can go there. That's interesting. And I'm planning to do that. Yeah. Because I can. Because apparently my waterschap also covers uh, the Hague. Yes, it would do. Yes, because we have, we must be both in the same waterschap, yeah. Delfland. Yeah. And obviously the same province. Yes. And so in that case, because uh, our listeners are more likely to have a vote for the Waterschappen, uh, we should uh, explain a bit about what they do. Yeah. There are 21 Waterschappen in the Netherlands, and in 1915 there were 2,600. Mm. So they reduced the number of uh, wow. Waterschappen quite a bit. And that's a heck of a lot of meetings. Yeah. And <laughs> tiny, tiny cakes, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and cups of, little cups of coffee. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the Waterschappen are responsible basically for water management and water defence. Yeah. As we know, half of the Netherlands is below sea level and it's the waterschappen who takes care of the dikes uh, that protects us from the sea. And additionally, they are responsible for uh, drinking water and purifying wastewater. And for this, um, we pay taxes and yes. uh, to the waterschappen and that's why we can vote for them mm-hmm. because uh, taxation without representation is a no-go. Uh, it's a bad thing, isn't it? Yes. So Molly could confirm this yeah. uh, if she was here. Uh, each waterschap, just like the province, has a governing board. It has between 18 to 30 seats. And the chairman is known as the Dijkgraaf, yeah. which means, which literally translates to Dijk Count. Yes, the Count of the Dijk. Count yes. of the Dijks. That's a great title to have. I want to be a Dijkgraaf. There are a lot up. of people who have yeah. that as a surname. Yes. Uh, so no, maybe no, you no, can no, marry well, someone yeah. and you can take take over uh, her name. Uh, that, that could happen. There's a thought. 
And uh, this person is also appointed by the king. Mm. Interestingly enough, some seats at the Waterschappen are not elected. A number of these are directly taken by representatives for example, agriculture, yeah. the Chamber of Commerce and environmental organizations. So mm -hmm. they're just given to them because they are the ones who uh, have a direct or financial interest in the Waterschappen's policies. Yeah. So that's not very democratic. But no. it's something that the Waterschappen didn't came up with by themselves, but it was something that was forced by the Tweede Kamer, by the, okay. by the government. So, right. yeah. And are they particularly political, uh, the Waterschappen? No. Right. <laughs> no, not at all. It's not a very political body. Yeah. Although I have seen in my election literature that um, some of the political parties, like the PFDA, are putting candidates up for the water board oh, elections. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But there isn't that many discussion about what the Waterschappen have to yeah. do and how they will do it. Yeah, but I think there has been, I mean, certainly the environment parties, because the Waterschap have a responsibility, for example, to manage the water level, level of yeah. the dikes. The parties like Kuhn Links and Deus and Sestok say that the agriculture has too much of an influence and is actually deliberately keeping the dike level artificially low because that's good for the fields, uh, but not good in terms of climate change management. Yeah, so exactly. So I think it is becoming a little more politicised than maybe it has been before because we now have this climaticord that we referred to earlier in the podcast. And that's the thing that, uh, you know, obviously the Waterschap have a role in many measures to uh, combat climate change yeah that's the that's the thing uh, the waterschappen have to balance um, what is best for agriculture and for nature yeah. and that's basically what they are doing every day and that's the only political thing i can imagine what they are dealing with but i mean it's more more a technocratic rather than political institution i mean we have so much water in this country that uh, it's more of a technocratic institution than a political institution yeah. but i mean they deal with water and we have a lot of water in this country and mm -hmm. so their task often coincides with the municipality's tasks or the province's tasks mm -hmm. so there is some friction with this because you know obviously these bodies are much more political than the waterschappen yeah. so yeah there is some tension between that and as you said the people who deal with the waterschappen on a daily basis are farmers yeah. And they are the one who notice what happens yeah. with the waterschappen. Yes, exactly. so they it's got a real effect on them. Much more involved with the waterschappen. And now with the climate agreement, environmental organizations are also much more involved. Yeah. So that often clashes. Yeah, so, so there's more kind of activism, I suppose, uh, in the waterschappen um, than perhaps has been in the past. It's famously the oldest form of government, I believe, in the Netherlands as well. The, yeah. the, the water, yeah, the water authority. Yeah. The, the waterschappen before there were um, it's local, a local councils. It's the cat of Dutch politics. It is, yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah. Which kind of reflects the fact that you know the whole foundation of the Netherlands as a country was about reclaiming land from the sea and managing water and uh, yeah. keeping your feet dry. Yeah, and that's the yeah. thing. I think the average person in the Netherlands, they want to have their feet dry, they want to stay safe, and they yeah. want to have clean water. And how yeah. that is achieved, they don't really care as long as nothing serious happens yes. with them, of course. Yeah, as long as somebody does it. As long as somebody does it. Yeah. And, th and that's the reason why this body is so apolitical, because nobody pays attention to it. I mean, for the average Dutch person, they want to remain safe of course and they want mm. to have clean water and how it is achieved they don't really care as long as it happens as long as it gets done yeah, yeah. and yeah. Uh, I heard somebody say we don't have socialist dikes we don't have liberal dikes or Christian <laughs> democrat dikes uh, we just have dikes we just have dikes yeah, yeah. and yeah. that basically sums up how political uh, the waterschappen yeah. are I yeah. think the Netherlands a nation of dikes yeah, yeah. <laughs> but for people who do want to vote in the water board elections is there anything uh, that they can consult uh, that can advise them on where they should put their vote yes there are the uh, notorious stem vices. 
yes. from the internet. Uh, we will link to them in the liner notes. They are available in Dutch and some of them are in English uh, and that can help you uh, make your decision. Yeah. Uh, what are the stemwijzers? They are basically an endless list <laughs> of questions and yeah. you have to answer what your opinion is about them and then at the end... Yeah, uh, it's kind of about 20 or 30 statements, isn't it? You have to decide whether you agree or disagree and then it'll tot up your score and decide which party you, you most closely agree with. Have you done yours? Uh, not the waterschap no. because I, I I was I was doing it and I was like I don't know I don't care I don't know I don't care and at the end I was like yeah it doesn't really make it doesn't sense really make for a whole me lot of, yeah, it yeah it doesn't make a difference doesn't amount to hill of beans I did mine for the waterschap I'd say no, I came out as a, uh, a paper no paper yeah oh paper yeah <laughs> oh that's why you know why the paper is involved in the waterschap yes exactly ah, okay okay well the paper will be very happy with your vote at no least doubt. somebody will well that's all we have for you this week this podcast is a production of Dutch News which can be found online at dutchnews.nl we will include links to everything we've talked about in the liner notes you can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl if you want to help us out please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating my thanks to Gordon Derek and not to Molly Quell we'll be back next week